Turn with me to Jeremiah 39. Day of Reckoning. Jeremiah chapter 39. We're finally to the day. Decades into the ministry of Jeremiah, the unfortunate day which he has promised would come, has come. The day of captivity. This does not rec uh, represent a victory for Jeremiah. Indeed, all who warn of judgment that is to come, the day that the warnings of their judgment come to pass, it's not a day of rejoicing. It's not a day of victory, at least when the people they're announcing to have not responded to the call of the word of God. This is in many ways a culmination of sorrows that Jeremiah has pled and he has ached and he has sought and he has told and he has suffered and now is the day, the day of reckoning. Now is the day when all of his warnings are going to come to pass. Today we read of the captivity of Babylon for the land of Judah, the final one. The land which had refused the word of the Lord by the voice of the prophet Jeremiah. Yet we also see another type of reckoning. A reckoning upon the faithful and the believing. One which as God always does. I love this about prophecy. One which will give us hope in the midst of sorrow. Hope in the midst of judgment. Whenever you see judgment, whether it's prophecy of judgment or the judgment coming to pass, look for that hope. Until that final judgment of which there is no hope, there is always hope. Until that day. We pick up in verses 1 and 2 of Jeremiah 39. The Bible says this, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month came Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. So we read here the history of the siege of Jerusalem. It began, the text tells us, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the tenth month of Nebuchadnezzar, which is Nebuchadnezzar, a different name for him, king of Babylon. And that's when the siege began. About one and a half years later, in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the fourth month, and Jeremiah specifically cites the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. It fell to Babylon. Now we get a little picture of what this time looked like from the account of the kings and the chronicles. And I'd like to take you uh, to that account this evening in order to understand a little bit more, historically speaking, what we're dealing with. We'll go to 2 Kings in just a moment to understand this. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to see several historical events, which we also find in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And so I would encourage you, if you, if you study this stuff, if you, if you take what we, what we talk about and you go home with it and you study it out a little bit more, I'd encourage you to really look at, at those passages in, in, in tandem and to see the, the harmony of them. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a little bit of 2 Kings 25 to give us a bit of an overview, a broader perspective on what we find this evening. We begin in, in verse 1, and the Bible says this, And it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, that would be Zedekiah, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his hosts against Jerusalem, and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged unto the eleventh year, 
of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city. So they, they had to give in because the famine prevailed. Uh, literally, the, the city had no food. And at, at what, at, so it was just waiting for the city to be broken by the famine. There was no bread for the people in the land. Verse 4, And the city was broken up, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees were against the city round about. And the king went the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon to Riblah. And they gave judgment upon him. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the, houses of the, Lord, the house of the Lord excuse me, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jer Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuzaradan, the king of the guard, carry away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord. And the bases and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord. Did the Chaldees break in pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon. And the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. And the firepans and the bowls and such things as were of gold and the gold and gold and of silver in silver. The captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, and the bases which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The brass of all these vessels was without weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and the chapiter upon it was brass, and the height of the chapiter three cubits, and the wreath and work, and the pomegranates upon the chapiter round about, all of brass. And like unto these had the second pillar with wreath and work. And the captain of the guard took Saraiah the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war. And five men of them were in the king's presence, which were found in the city. And the principal scribe of the host, which mustered the people of the land. And threescore men of the people of the land were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of their land. As for the people that remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had left, even over them he made Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, ruler. So this gives us an overview of the terrible events that took place at this time. The city holds out for one and a half years in the siege until it is broken up because there's simply no food left in the city and the people are starving and it has broken their will and so they give in. The leadership of the nation tries and fails to flee by night. The walls of the city are torn down. The temple of God is gleaned 
Every bit of value is gleaned from it. They burn it. They raise it to the ground. The priests of the temple, the leaders of the people, were slain by the king of Babylon, killed there at his, at, at his kind of home base, his base of operation in Ribla. Nebuchadnezzar places a governor over the people named Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, of whom we will speak significantly more next week. So we see this time of devastation. You notice that Zedekiah was not killed. In consistency with what Jeremiah promised of Zedekiah, on the day that Zedekiah showed some measure of something spiritual in that he sought to release all of those servants. And yet remember last week, we recognized that Zedekiah still did not have enough faith in the Lord to believe that he should do it the Lord's way. And so whereas God, uh, uh, Jeremiah had told him, if you yield, if you give in, if you give yourself to the king of Babylon, you will not only be spared, but you will go in peace. Notice what happened instead, because Zedekiah refused. He watched his sons killed before his eyes. Then his eyes were put out, and he was carried in shame to Babylon. He didn't die. He would live out his days in peace. All those things that God had promised will come to pass. But the manner in which they worked out was still very negative because Zedekiah refused to humble himself. So we find this summary. Backing back into Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about some of these similar things. In verses 3 through 5, we read this. And all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle of the gate, even Nirgal Sharidzer, Sam Garnebo, Sarsakim, Rabsaris, Nergal Sharizer, Rabmag, with all the residue of the princes of the king of Babylon. And it came to pass that when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saw them and all the men of war, then they fled and went forth out of the city by night, by the way of the king's garden, by the gate betwixt the two walls. And he went out the way of the plain, but the Chaldeans' army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and Riblah, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. So, as we read in 2 Kings 25, so we find here with a few extra details, uh, Jeremiah gives the names of a few of these princes of Babylon. Following the fall of the city, these princes... Uh, they sit in a middle gate which partitioned the upper city from the lower city. The upper city housed the temple mount and it housed the royalty. The lower city, of course, housing the commoners. It would seem that the Chaldeans were forcing folks from the upper city into the lower city uh, and so sat at the gate looking for nobility and those that they might want to, to take or, or to use in some way, shape, or form. Zedekiah, still unwilling to obey the word of the Lord, just as we talked about last week, still unwilling to give himself to Babylon, chose rather to flee than to submit. So he attempts to slip away with his personal guard by night out of the city to the south by the garden of the king's house and into the plains by Jericho. Uh, this was not unanticipated, though, as we might expect, right? And he was quickly apprehended and he was brought to the king just as Jeremiah promised he would. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied, you will see the king face to face. You will speak to him face to face. God's word will not be broken. God's word came to pass. Jeremiah promised the king would not die, but would be taken to the Babylon to die in peace, as we just mentioned. And Zedekiah will see this as well. 
So he's face to face with Nebuchadnezzar, as Jeremiah says he would. We continue in verses 6 through 8. Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and break down the walls of Jerusalem. So they put out Zedekiah's eyes, they bind him in chains, they take him to Babylon. They burn his house, they burn the people's houses, they break down the walls. As we read, they fleece the temple and they burn it to the ground as well. A terrible, terrible end for this city of the Most High God. A city which was the place where the Lord chose to put his name, but which had abandoned the Lord long ago. And it is likely at the same time in Jeremiah's reckoning that the city, that the temple is burned with fire. Verses 9 and 10. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive into Babylon the remnant of the people that remained in the city and those that fell away that fell to him with the rest of the people that remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left the poor of the people which had nothing in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So again, we've read this in our summary in Second Kings. The captain of the guard is a man named Nebuzaradan. We read of him in Second Kings 25 as well. This is the first time we see him in the book of Jeremiah, though his name will come up again in, su- in subsequent chapters. He carries away the remnant of the people who were not dead. At this time, there were many that fell out to them, that gave themselves over to them, and he carried away all of those, including many who had defected. He did not, however, take everyone. He left a contingency of the poorest among them and he gave them land and he gave them vineyards. That was quite necessary. Someone had to stay in the land so that the land didn't rot, so that it wasn't just overgrown and become useless. Uh, This was a way of maintaining the conquered land and giving it to the poor was the best way to do it because the poor would then be beholden to the king because they never had land, they never had vineyards, they never had these things. And so by leaving the poorest in the land and by giving them these things, uh, there would be an element of, of appreciation um, for the king and, and the fact that, that the nobility is gone, the landowners are gone, they get the land now. And that uh, would have kept them generally loyal to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylon. Verses 11 and 12. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look well to him and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. So this is really interesting. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, as given by Jeremiah here, was... The, the most powerful king in the world. He was the king over the most powerful empire in the world. One of the most powerful empires the world has ever known in the Babylonian Empire. And he knows Jeremiah by name. And he designated by name the captain of his guard to find Jeremiah and to take care of him. So let's take a moment to think about why this might be. Certainly, the defectors of years gone by might have mentioned that there's this guy in Jerusalem, Jeremiah, who is preaching and saying Babylon's going to come, Babylon's going to take over, submit to Babylon at some point. That message, of course, switched to submission. Here we are. We're in 587 B.C. Daniel, remember, was taken to Babylon some 17 years prior. 
So Daniel's been in Babylon now for 17-ish years, as well as Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the three Hebrew uh, children, as we call them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 B.C., about 25 years after the final fall of Jerusalem. So we have a, a scope of about 40 years between when Daniel enters the land and when Nebuchadnezzar dies. Between that time, when Daniel enters the land and Nebuchadnezzar dies, there's a few things that have to happen according to the book of Daniel, right? So we know from the book of Daniel that the king had his dream in the second year. I hope that's somewhat readable. It's maybe a little small. He had his dream in the second year. That would generally be understood to be 603 to 602 B.C. At this time, the king would have been introduced in a very strong way to Daniel and to the God of Daniel and to the power of the God of Daniel. Sometime after this, Nebuchadnezzar makes that image of gold. And he demands that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael bow unto that image of gold. It seems strange that this would happen too long after that great dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a, a, a dream where he sees an image, and he, him, the, 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 on the image, of course, Babylon is the head of gold, right? And then you have the Medo-Persian Empire is silver, and then you have the, the Grecian Empire, which is brass, and then you have the Roman Empire, which is iron. And so you have this, this, uh, this statue, and it, it's almost too convenient that then he erects a statue, a monument to himself, a grand monument of gold to himself that he expects everyone to worship. So that shouldn't have happened too many years after he has this dream. And of course, we know that it is there that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael refuse to bow down. And recall that when they refused to bow down, the king did something which apparently he was somewhat wont to do, which was to toss people into the fire. And he tosses these three guys into the fire, except they don't burn, and their clothes don't burn, and their hair doesn't burn. And then he calls them to walk out of the furnace and they walk out and they don't even smell the smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar is starting to learn some things about the God of the Jews. So now he has this Jewish man who's one of his chief wise men now named Daniel. And Daniel, one of his chief wise men, was able to interpret a dream that no one else could interpret. And he was elevated to great stature. Then Daniel's three friends called in Babylon Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down before this great statue. And they're thrown in the fire. They come out unsinged because they said, God is able to deliver us if he would will, will it. He's learning some things. It would, might imply to us thus that the incident of the fiery furnace could very well have happened within the 15 years between his dream and the final fall of, of Jerusalem. Fifteen years is the span that we have there. This is, of course, speculation. Many put the events of Daniel 3, which is Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, after the fall of Jerusalem. That's possible, but, but here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar knows Jeremiah by name and takes special interest in keeping Jeremiah well and doesn't even just say, take care of him. He says, whatever Jeremiah tells you, do that. He doesn't just know Jeremiah's name. He respects this man. There's, there's something there. It seems unlikely that the events of Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and goes crazy and lives as a beast and then regains it 
when he finally finds repentance before God, it seems unlikely that that happened before the fall of Jerusalem. So the question becomes, where did Daniel 3 happen? Daniel 4 most likely happened afterward. And we know that that happened in a time of peace because he was back in his land. He was observing his wall. He was, he was considering his own grandeur when he heard the voice of the Lord say, you're going to be as a beast of the field until you regard me as the most high God. But what we do know is sufficient for us to understand that King Nebuchadnezzar at this point would not have been unfamiliar with the prophets of Israel. And with Daniel, of course, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, having been prominent leaders in Babylon for some 15 years at this point, there's no reason to think that he would not have regarded the prophet, probably at the behest of Daniel, as someone very worth his time. Daniel, we know a little bit later in the book of Daniel, is reading Jeremiah's prophecies when he discerns that the 70 years is up that Jeremiah wrote of. So he regarded Jeremiah's prophecies. He understood them well. Of course, at the same time, Ezekiel is by the river Kibar in Babylon doing his work. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are all contemporaries. They're in three different places at the exact same time doing their work. Either way, this is what we see. Jeremiah is mentioned by name, not just by the captain of the guard, but by the king. The king says to his captain, his general, find that man and take care of him. Verses 13 and 14. So Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, sent, and Nebuchadnezzar, Rabsaris, and Nergal-sharizer, Rabmag, and all the, king, uh, all the king of Babylon's princes, even they sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of prison and committed him into, into, unto Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should carry him home. So he dwelt among the people. So this group of men, and I'm not going to repeat their names. Babylonian names aren't easy to say. This group of men that were before the gate, that were between these gates, once they've done their work, once the king is taken care of, once they found the nobility, once all of that is done, Nebuchadnezzar takes them and says, go find Jeremiah. And they find him in the court of the prison and they pull him out of that court of the prison and they commit him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, who will eventually become governor. We'll talk about him again next week. And Jeremiah is thus able to dwell safely among the people that remained. But his ministry was not complete, as evidenced at least by the reality that we still have some 14 chapters to preach in the book. Now, the final four verses give us another prophecy by the mouth of Jeremiah, which was given to him while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. So we're going back in time a little bit to before he was pulled out of that court, uh, out of that prison, for this final prophecy here in this chapter, verses 15 through 18. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for evil and not for good. They shall be accomplished in that day before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord. And thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid. For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword. But thy life shall be for a prey unto thee, because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. While still in the court of the prison, Jeremiah is called to go speak to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian. Remember him from last time? 
Remember how Zedekiah had had those men come up to him and say, why isn't Jeremiah dead yet? And he says, I don't care about what, I don't care what you do to Jeremiah. Go deal with him. And they put him in the pit. And then this Ethiopian servant in the house of the king, Abed-Melech, goes to the king at the gate and says, king, if he stays down there, he's going to die. Let me get him out. And the king says, get 30 men and pull him out. And 30 men gather together and pull Jeremiah out of that pit and he stays in the court of the prison. This is that Abed-Melech, this Ethiopian eunuch, this servant in the king's household, this nobody. And God's message to him was this, though he will inevitably bring about the ruin of the city, in the day when it falls, God would deliver Abed-Melech. And it says from those of whom he is afraid. We don't know exactly what that means. It was not necessarily uncommon for servants in the king's household to just be cast aside in, in, in such a time. But we don't know of whom he was afraid and exactly why he was afraid of them. But we know this. God knew. And God says, those that you are afraid of, don't be afraid of them. Do you remember when God said the same thing to Zedekiah? Do you remember when, when God said to, to, to Zedekiah through Jeremiah, if you will just obey the word of the Lord, you don't have to be afraid. All those things you fear, that you'll be mocked by the women of your court. All those things that you fear, that those who are defected will mock you. All those things that you fear, that, that, that you will be killed. They won't come to pass. It will be well with you if only you will trust me. Consider this contrast with me this evening. On one hand, you have the king of a nation. On the other hand, you have a servant and a eunuch. On one hand, you have a man elevated to the highest position in the land. On the other hand, you have a man who was probably purchased out of Ethiopia and effectively not even, not even a Jew, like the lowest of the low in this land. This man, God says, trust me and I'll bless you. This man, God says, trust me and I'll bless you. It'll be well with you, it'll be well with you. This man disobeys. This man obeys. God says to this man, you will suffer the consequences of your actions. God says to this man, you will suffer the consequences of your action. This man, his eyes are put out, his sons are killed before him. He walks in shame to Babylon in chains. This man, God says, you will be delivered from those you feared. You have put your trust in me. It will be well with you. On that day, this man got the honor before the Lord. Not that man. He would not die. His life would, not, his life would be a prey unto him, the text says. It's an interesting phrase. His life would be a prey unto him. We've only seen it two other times in the book. Jeremiah 21, verse 9. Jeremiah 38, verse 2. So we know it's a proverbial phrase. It's a, it's a, a figure of speech. Carries the idea of being delivered from the gravest of circumstances. Whether the illusion is the idea of a hunted animal just barely escaping with his life from the hunt or, or more of a hunter who manages to get the prey that he's longed for. Nobody fully understands the origins of this part of this, this figure of speech, but the idea is that he would be delivered. He would be spared from death and from his fears because he put his trust in the Lord. See, the Lord is not a respecter of persons. Thank God for that. God didn't look down at the servant, the eunuch, and say, well, you're just, you're just some, some Ethiopian eunuch. You're not one of the children of Israel, so I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to care about you. 
God didn't say that. God didn't say that. Because indeed, God did care. Several points here of note in our application this evening. Point number one, we can't pick and choose from God's promises and character. We can't pick and choose from God's promises and God's character. A very interesting circumstance takes place in this chapter which deeply intrigues me. Over the course of the last couple of chapters, as we've mentioned, we've seen a number of promises given to Zedekiah. Back in chapter 34, Zedekiah seemingly did right seeking to release the Hebrew servants in Jerusalem. God promised him that he would see the, ba- the king of Babylon face to face and that he would go to, to Babylon in peace and with the burnings of his fathers, right? We spoke of this wonderful mercy to the king, which is rightly regarded as an evil king. Second Kings calls him an evil king. Second Chronicles calls him an evil king. But because of this singular deed of minimal submission... God granted him a measure of mercy. Then we consider chapters 37 and 38 from last week. And we see Zedekiah's tremendous reluctance to have Jeremiah killed. He didn't have this reluctance early on in his reign, as we talked about. He he slew the, the prophet Uriah in Jeremiah 26. And then I think to the events of the siege itself. The king knows God has said that he will stand before the king of Babylon and and that he would see him eye to eye and he would see him mouth to mouth. Speak to him mouth to mouth. And Zedekiah, knowing these things from the mouth of the prophet, knowing that he had been promised in in an expression of mercy in Jeremiah 27, knowing that he had been promised... 37, excuse me, uh, 34. Knowing that he had been promised these things and that as a part of this promise he would see the king face to face, he, he runs anyway. Knowing that he would die in peace in the land of Babylon, he tries to run anyway. Long story short and simple explanation is that once again he disregarded the word of the Lord. He did what he wanted to do and the results were evident. But I wonder about something else. I wonder about it because it's a tendency of human nature, even, and in fact, prominently seen in the nation of Judah. I wonder if Zedekiah didn't key in on the part of God's promise that he liked, that he would die in peace and receive the burnings of his fathers, and kind of forget all that stuff about seeing the king face to face and going to Babylon as if he could have the part that that he really wanted while avoiding the part he didn't. As if he could pick and choose from God's promises and God's character. As if he could have the part he liked without having to do the part that he didn't want. As if he said, well, God, I'm going to do what's best for me and thanks for being a part of that. And I wonder if he did this because if, if I'm to be honest with myself, it's my tendency as well. I don't know if, I, I, I think I'm comfortable in calling it a human tendency, uh, a, a tendency of, of, of all of us, but I'll just speak for myself. It's my tendency as well. That if I'm not careful, I look at the things 
that the Lord has laid out in His Word. And I find the things that I like and I really kind of cling to those, but I don't, I don't regard the parts of it that, you know, I kind of I conveniently forget the parts that, that maybe aren't as exciting to me. And I forget that God is a package. He is who He is. I can't pick and choose Him. I can't, I can't pick Him apart and decide which parts of Him I want and then just leave the other parts to rot. We remember that God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, but we forget that unrepentant sin can alienate us from God. We remember God's promises of provision, but we forget God's promises of chastening. We remember the stuff that works in our favor, but we have a tendency to forget the conditions upon which that favor rests. Let me show you a few of what I mean here. We've gone to this passage a couple of times. Let's go there again in this context. James 1, 5 through 8. We talked about it. We just, we just explained it last week. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So God promises in his word that if you lack wisdom, you can have it. And I'm really quick to remember that. Except that I oftentimes forget the whole but let him ask in faith nothing wavering part. What does it mean? It means that I can't be living in darkness and expect God to give me light. I can't be dwelling in darkness and, and, and saying, God, why haven't you given me light while I'm sitting in the cave? I can't expect to have wisdom if I reject God's word. I can't expect to have wisdom if I reject God's counsel. If I'm praying for wisdom and refusing to listen to my spiritual authorities, refusing to listen to the word of God, refusing to listen to those that he has ordained over me, refusing to listen to those that he has placed in my life, don't expect the wisdom. I can't rest on God's promise to give me wisdom without also resting on God's promise that it comes to those only who ask in faith. How about Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, 31 to 33? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God's promise to provide for me food and drink and clothing. Raiment, food, drink, don't worry about these things. The Gentiles, the unbelieving world, they spend all of their time clamoring around this world like a little ants on a log, trying to provide for themselves, trying to secure their future. God says, you don't have to do that. Seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added unto you. And so I, I read this promise. And I say, okay, God, you're going to provide for me clothes and you're going to provide for me meals. And then I go and I seek first my kingdom. <laughs> And then I say, God, where is it? Where's the provision? God, wh wh where, is, where, where is the next step? Where is the path? And I forget that it says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. I forget that, that, that part that, 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 I, that, that takes faith, that takes trust, that takes discipline. We talked this morning about prayer 
And in prayer, we talked about the fact that that, that concept itself of prayer, you know, we can break prayer up into any number of, of things, right? A- adoration and, and uh, confession and supplication and thanksgiving and intercession. And there's all of these elements to prayer. So then what is prayer? I mean, if, if we can break it up, then what good is the word prayer? Well, prayer is a description of the exercise. It's about devotion. It's about regularity. It's about work because prayer is hard work. So we say, I'm going to pray. And then all of these things go into prayer. We're confessing our sins. We're, we're praising the Lord. We're giving Him thanks. We're, we're, we're asking Him for the things that we need and for the things of others. We're interceding for the, for the needs of others. And all of that is a part. I have to think of others and I have to lay these things before the Lord. And I have to be humble and I have to be vulnerable. And I have to do all these things. And it's all prayer. That's, that's the exercise. And as we considered that concept of prayer, recognizing that it is hard work, recognizing that there is a spiritual necessity and a spiritual effort to it, we consider this idea. See, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that's not easy. But that's where the provision is found. That's where if I put God first, God says, I'll take care of the rest. But if I say, God, take care of this, and by the way, I'm not going to put you first, it's not going to work that way. See, that's what Zedekiah wanted. I might be imposing a little bit upon him, but I don't think so, as far as his intentions. He knew what the prophet had said, and he knew what the promises of God were. He knew that God said, you'll go to Babylon. He knew that God said, you'll see the king face to face, and yet he still tried to escape, to have his cake and eat it too. We can't do that. We can't pick and choose from God's promises. We can't pretend that God is not both holy and merciful. We can't pretend choosing, picking and choosing the elements of God's character that God is love but not holiness, that that God's blessings are not conditioned upon faith. All throughout Scripture, we see these things to be true. If you want God's blessing, it only comes as you pursue it God's way. For the blessing of salvation, we must obey the gospel and we must believe by faith. For the blessing of provision, we must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. For the blessing of wisdom, we must ask in faith nothing wavering. That's the idea. We can't pick and choose from God's character. We can't pick and choose from His promises. We take God for who He is. Or we don't. Second point. The results of a divine promise don't establish an easy path to get it. Zedekiah seemed to regard some of the promises without taking thought to others, right? But he also seemed to regard some of the promises without considering that his faithfulness to God would still affect how those promises came to pass. I talked about that last week, and I've already mentioned it as it related to 2 Kings 25. God says to Zedekiah, you will see the king face to face. God says to Zedekiah, you will go to Babylon. God didn't say he would ever see anything else again. Except, last week in chapters 37 and 38, when Jeremiah said, give yourself to Babylon and you will go without any of those fears being worked out. You will go and you will go in utter and absolute peace. You won't be mocked. You won't be, you, there won't be all of this cruelty. It won't happen. So did God just conveniently leave this stuff out? 
all that stuff about Zedekiah watching his sons die before his eyes and then his eyes being gouged out and being taken to Babylon. Did God just conveniently say, I'm not going to tell you that part? No. That wasn't it. Had Zedekiah submitted himself to the Lord, he would have seen those things. The way that his mind perhaps envisioned it, it would have come to pass that way. But see, faith always precedes blessing. The limit to the degree to which God was able to show mercy and bless, bless Zedekiah was the, was the degree to which Zedekiah had faith in God's word. And at the moment that Zedekiah ceased that, he lost the path. He stepped off of God's path of mercy and he went down his own, his own path again. And while all of the promises that God had given him in mercy for the little things he had done are still valid, how much did he lose by simply getting off the path? Might Zedekiah have stood before the king as God had promised but not seen his sons die, but not lost his eyes and still died in peace in Babylon? Absolutely. But Zedekiah lost it. He missed it. He still could not bring himself to trust the Lord. The results of a divine promise don't establish an easy path to get it, a simple path to get it. Just because I see a promise that God has made to me doesn't mean I can just float through this life ignoring God and, and, and then get it in the way that I envision it. We see this going all the way back to Abraham when God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And it wasn't working out well for him and Sarah. It wasn't working out well because Sarah was barren. And so they concoct a plan. Hey, here's my Egyptian maid. Have a son with her because God hasn't given me the ability to have children, Sarah says. Abraham listens, submits his headship to his wife. Ishmael is born. See, Abraham knew the promise and he believed it. He believed that promise that he was going to have a son. He was going to have an heir. And then once he was given the promise, he started thinking, there's obstacles here. How can I bring this promise to pass? What's the easy path? What's the way to go? When, when, when my wife is barren and God has made, given me a promise, God does not need our help to work out his own promises. He doesn't. He needs us to stay on the path. And what, what, what consequences came to Isaac and to the posterity of Isaac? Because Abraham at some point said, I'm going to bring about God's promise my way. Zedekiah here, he lost the path. God gives us promises of heaven to wipe away all our tears that will be in his presence forever. And the foolish among us might say, good, I have that promise. I know the ending, so now I can do whatever I want, right? I know the ending. He shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. We'll be in his presence. That's heaven. That's good. Done. Promise secured. It's now my path, and we step off God's path. And we forget that, though that promise is true, there are a number of things of which the scriptures are not fully clear, but which can dramatically affect what that ending might look like and the disposition with which we receive it. Jesus spoke of rewards. The apostles spoke of rewards. Jesus spoke of a loss of rewards. Paul spoke of a loss of rewards, of sorrow, of regret, of tears, of shame. No one really knows all of what that means. 
And if we fool ourselves into thinking that God's promises and his character and the areas uh, that are clear free us to walk contrary to his will in the areas that aren't, there's coming a day of reckoning. Just like Zedekiah had a day of reckoning. He'd been given some promises. He knew what they were. They were clear. But there were some gaps left unfulfilled in, in the whole history of how this was going to go about. He sees those promises and seems to say, okay, I've, I've secured this stuff. I'm going to go my own way. And the manner in which it worked itself out, terrible, sorrowful, awful, was the fruit of him getting off the path. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Romans makes that clear. The promises of God will always rest upon those whom they are, unto whom they are given. But how those promises come about is another story. On the day God promised to Israel the kingdom, no one could have imagined when they're there in, in Exodus and God is promising to them a kingdom, to make them a kingdom of priests, to give them that land that he had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I don't think anyone might, would have imagined that Israel's path to those kingdom promises would go through all of the suffering that the nation has endured to this point. See, they banked on those promises. They failed to remain faithful. And so the path to those promises became hard. Don't make the same mistake. Don't make the path to God's promises. The promises that you have. You, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I, I, I hope and pray that you have. Praise the Lord for that. You've got a home in heaven one day. But don't make the path to that promise hard. By rebellion. Stay faithful. Use God's promise as motivation. That's why indeed it is called our blessed hope. It is the foundation of what drives us, what compels us to stay faithful. Not because we're afraid to lose it, but because the disposition with which it, within which we enter it can still change. The path to the promise of God can and indeed does change based upon my disposition toward God in the context of those promises. Point number three. No man, no group, no nation can thwart God's purposes. One of the amazing things about this chapter is the ability it gives us to reflect on how all of God's promises by the mouth of Jeremiah came to pass. Babylon did what God said Babylon would do. Judah did what God said Judah would do. God made promises to Jeremiah. They came to pass. God made promises to Abedmelech. Now they're going to come to pass. God made promises to Zedekiah. They came to pass. God wove together time, circumstance, personalities, and history to bring to pass his promises. Never let us forget that we serve a God who is sovereign. Never let us forget that God is the master weaver of history that God is accounting for our free will and accounting for His sovereign plan. And He is weaving history together to bring about His purposes. And this should drive us to two things. First, it should drive us to a measure of reverent fear. Knowing that this is God's show. This is His rodeo. These are His rules. And we are here playing by His rules. And we can break those rules, but we can never break them without consequences. 
That should drive us to godly fear. It should also, however, drive us to that blessed hope. Because we are reminded that the purposes of evil men, and there's a lot of them out there right now, driven by the great enemy of God, Satan, you can, you can literally trace the darkness over the past 15 years. I mean, you can watch it. You can read the news and see the darkness rolling over this land. And we're reminded that though the wrong be oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Satan is destined to have his heyday, but he is also destined unto inevitable failure, and we need to remember that. Point number four, final point. Never forget, it's a good time to bubble it up, that you reap what you sow. This is one of those laws of God, those enduring laws that he wove in the same way that he wove gravity into the fabric of, of, of physics and into the fabric of his universe. In the same way that, that he wove all of the physical laws into this universe, God wove some spiritual laws into the fabric of this universe. And one of those laws that he wove into this universe is the law of sowing and reaping. We remind ourselves of the great exhortation in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, what you plant, that shall he also reap. That's what's going to grow. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Zedekiah didn't beat this principle. The sowing and reaping principle. He couldn't run from the consequences of his rebellion. There are any number of ways to game an earthly system. I can game the IRS in any number of ways. I can game my, my uh, uh, education in any number of ways. I can game, you can, you can game this church in any number of ways. You can game your neighbors. You can game your, your city ordinances. You can, you can game the system when it comes to man's fallible earthly systems. But no matter how convinced you are, you've gotten away with something in the eyes of God before the God of the universe. You haven't. You reap what you sow. Choices have consequences. No earthly authority may see what you're doing, but there's always someone watching. And this goes both ways. The way, of course, that instills within us that godly and reverent fear is that fact that what is done in darkness will be made light. Is that fact that no matter how often I get away with it before the eyes of men, I've gotten away with nothing before the eyes of God. But be encouraged because this goes both ways. There are some folks that serve this church in a number of small little ways. You're straightening chairs, you're cleaning up trash, you're going down and you see the bathroom's a little bit more of a mess than it ought to be and you're cleaning here and you're doing a little something there and, and you're getting no credit. You're behind the scenes, you're helping out in whatever way, you're getting no credit. You're giving your pastor a call during the week and saying, hey, I'm praying for you, I just wanted to encourage you and you pr- actually pray for him and you're not getting any credit bef- for, for those things. The church may be is, is building up in the Lord and, and is stable and is strong. And, and a part of that might be you on your knees, nightly, weekly, praying for this church. You're not getting any credit for that. But know this, you reap what you sow. Know this, there's always someone watching. 
Your friends and family may never be able to give you the credit for some service rendered. You may have someone that you have blessed in some real and tangible way spit in your face and, 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 and scorn you. And you say, wait a minute, all I've done is good to you. And this is, th- th- this is what I've received in return. And you take that because you're not going to uh, requite evil for evil. And you say, wow, that now seems like a waste, but it wasn't. Because every ounce of love and of effort that you poured into them in the name of the Lord, it's been seen. It's been recorded in the book. And there are rewards for that. This is what gives us the ability to love our enemies. Because there's a reward for that. No matter how my enemy treats me in return. We've got a great manners book that I read to my children. And in that manners book it says, if you treat people with good manners, they'll often treat you with good manners in return. Great principle, often true. Until the day it breaks down, right? And you treat people with good manners and they use those good manners to slap you in the face. But you know what? There's someone watching and you reap what you sow. And it's a principle that God has woven into the fabric of the created universe. And for good or for ill, it's not going anywhere. Remember that. Be encouraged by that. Have godly fear. But be encouraged by that. It's never a waste. That guy that you gave that money to and you say, wow, now I realize he took advantage of me. Okay, on the earth you lost some money, but you know what you gained in heaven by prayerfully in the name of the Lord giving that cup of cool water? You gained something before the Lord on that day and it did not go to waste. You encourage your friend in the Lord. You give him some Bible verses and he scorns you. And you say, wow, casting my pearls before swine. What a, what, what a waste. He, he, just, he, he used it to make fun of me. Whatever it might be, it wasn't a waste in the name of the Lord. Because you sowed that seed of righteousness. And if we can keep in mind that what we plant is what's going to grow. I'm not going to plant corn and get a watermelon. I'm not going to plant an apple tree and get oranges off of it. What I plant is what's going to grow. I'm not going to plant sin in my life and expect righteousness to grow. I'm not going to plant a lie. I might have gotten away with that lie, but I'm not going to plant that lie and expect the the tail end of that lie to be righteousness. I'm not going to plant rebellion toward my authority in my life and expect the fruit of that rebellion the fruit of that lie, the fruit of that, that, that stealing. I'm not going to expect that to ever grow anything of spiritual value. It can't because you reap what you sow. We would do well to remember this. The day of reckoning has come for Judah. It meant their choices of rebellion led them to utter ruin. For Zedekiah, it meant his attempts to serve both God and man led him to sorrow. For Jeremiah, it meant freedom from prison and restoration, just as God promised in Jeremiah 1, right? So chapter 1, God promised to be that shield for Jeremiah. Jeremiah's not going anywhere. For Abedmelech, it meant being delivered from those whom he feared because he had put his trust in the Lord. Now, we all have a day of reckoning. 
on that day of reckoning, on that day where we pass from this life into the next, are we going to be more like a Zedekiah or more like an Abedmelech? What will our disposition be before the Lord? If we live in light of the reality of consequences and rewards, we would indeed do well. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.